Hello, and welcome to the Papa Yaga Project. My name is Devin, and I have a master's degree in American history and indigenous studies. And I'm Sonia, and I'm doing a PhD in medieval history. And today on the podcast, we're talking about winter celebratory feasts. So Christmas feasts and Hanukkah feasts and lots of all of the feasts. Exactly. Lots of, of good winter. food all around. <laughs> And or the lack of said feast, if we're talking about the Puritans. (laughs) Puritans. Also, um, just a heads up, the piano concert continues. So get ready to hear some festive background music on my end. (laughs) All right, so let's just dive right in, I guess, into... What's going on in terms of feasting and why people tend to, a lot of cultures tend to have winter feast days. Yeah, Sonia, why feast? Well, I mean, it's partly because, you know, December tends to be dark, cold. Uh, You end up with the longest night of the year. The days get shorter and shorter and shorter. So... You know, in traditional agrarian societies, there's not a lot of work to be done. So, I mean, you got to find something to fill the time. Why not have a feast? (laughs) But more importantly, this is usually like that, that time of year when your winter stores haven't quite run out. Like there's still, there's still enough like good, like fresh meat that's recently been slaughtered. There's still maybe some like fresh fruit and vegetables left like in the pantry, like especially the heartier stuff. And you want to take the chance to basically eat a bunch of it before you really get into like January and February, which traditionally are pretty miserable because, you know, you're down to your last dregs of like, well, I guess it's porridge again and porridge every night. That Let's... Hope for spring. (laughs) Salted meat again. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I was going to say, too, is, like, you have the opportunity, because it's cold enough to keep things, that's when you slaughter animals, and so you have the opportunity to be eating fresh meat and, like, winter fruits and stuff without it being preserved, which is a pretty dope situation. It's like, we don't think about because we can go to a grocery store and get a chicken, but, like... If you have to keep that chicken in your non-climate-controlled... Yeah, and feed it food all cabin. winter. Like, you're only going to be eating it... Yeah, Although... You're only going to be eating it at a We're going to get into chickens being, because... You know, like prepared. Fun fact, that used to be a luxury food. Yeah. Chicken as a cheap food has been a really modern invention because back in the day, you know, you wouldn't slaughter an animal that could give you eggs every day. Because that's that's, true. that's expensive to get rid of. So only like that that was a flex. You were flexing if you were eating chicken. <laughs> and it's hard to like preserve a chicken. Yeah, exactly. Like a pig a pig you can one, it doesn't give you anything else. You can slaughter it and you can salt like the whole pig. Exactly. Or smoke the whole pig and then it's And they also eat literal trash. Year. Yeah. Like just your scraps and they can dig for acorns in the woods. But to start us off I'm actually going to discuss a feast where there there is no pork. There is definitely (laughs) no no pigs. But it was started because of pig slaughtering, kind of. Let me me take you back to Judea in, like, the (laughs) second century? Whoa, throwing it way back. 167? That's the second century, right? All right. So, we're back in Judea. Um, the Seleucid Empire, apologies if I'm mispronouncing anything in this section, or in general, are in power. And basically, if the emperor Antiochus, who says, no more of this Judaism stuff, we're going to go into the second temple, and we're going to dedicate the altar to Zeus, uh, circumcision is banned, which is a big deal because that's a part of the Jewish faith that's very important. 
And he ordered pigs to be sacrificed at the altar of the <gasps> temple, which is a big no-no because... Not kosher. Yes. Uh, any, yep, anyone who's familiar with Judaism in any form knows that pigs are a big no-no. So what happens is there is a Jewish revolt against the monarchy. The I'm not going to go into all the details, but they win. The temple is liberated and it's rededicated. And the festival of Hanukkah was instituted to celebrate this event. So basically what happens is they order the temple to be cleansed. There's a new altar built in the place of the desecrated one. But the problem is they only have enough oil to last them eight nights. Eight days and eight nights. Um, and they just have this small flask. But instead of just burning out, it ends up actually burning for eight days, which is the amount of time they needed to prepare a fresh supply of kosher oil for the menorah. So this eight-day festival was in commemoration of this miracle that happened, that the oil lasted long enough for them to be able to rededicate their temple properly. So, as a nod to that, there is a custom of eating fried foods or foods that are baked in oil. Oh. At Hanukkah. That's why latkes exist. Yeah. Exactly. So, obviously, you know, potatoes as we know them are New World foods. They wouldn't have had those in ancient Judea. However, you know, that the potatoes, there, there are, you know, historically different fried like deep fried breads and pastries. So a lot of, you know, a lot of fried donuts are common across many Jewish traditions, both in the Middle East and throughout Europe. And then, yeah, once the potatoes are introduced, uh, Ashkenazi Jews make them into latkes, whereas Sephardi Jews eat what's called fritas de prasa, which is similar to a latka, but is made with potatoes and leeks. That sounds good. Yeah, I also want to just add in that neither of us are Jewish, so this is just what I know from reading things. And um, I was also reading about how there's a tradition of eating cheese and other dairy products because it commemorates the heroism of Judith during the Babylonian captivity. Because what happens with Judith is there is a, an Assyrian general named Holofernes, and he had surrounded the village of Bethulia as part of his campaign to conquer Judea. And after a bunch of fighting, the water supply has been cut off. The Jewish people are in a really bad situation. But in comes Judith, who is a pious widow. And she told the city leaders, leave it to me. I've got a plan. I'm going to save the city. So she walks by herself into the Assyrian camps and pretends to surrender. And she gets to meet with Holofernes who sees her and is taken in by her beauty. And she goes to his tent with him, and she hangs out. She gives him cheese and wine. They have a good time. He gets drunk, falls asleep, and then she chops off his head and takes his head with her as she escapes from the camp. And the next morning, Holofernes' soldiers find his corpse, and they're just terrified because there's just this unexplained headless general in his tent and they go you know what forget it we're leaving we're out of here um that's awesome and basically the jewish people are able to launch a counterattack and chase them out and the assyrians are defeated anyway moving right along We've got our next big winter festival, which is Saturnalia, the Roman holiday, in dedication to, Saturn. you know, Saturn, <laughs> as the name would imply. And there's basically some debate about, like, well, how did it get started? And what's the actual origins of this? But it seems to be basically another harvest festival. Um, likely... Because, fun fact, um, in the ivory statue in Saturn's temple in Rome, it was all hollowed out, and they stored olive oil in there. That's the most so, Italian thing I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Listen, Devin, the Italians need their olive oil. How else are they going to make calabrese? They don't have tomatoes yet, but they were getting ready for it. They're just going to fill this whole statue full of olive oil. Exactly. So, you know, scholars argue that it's probably safe to say this is a big old harvest festival, uh, you know, honoring Saturn and you know, the all, all the good food that he gives us because Saturn was believed to have ruled the Earth in the Greek, Greco-Roman, really, you know, golden age uh, when food came freely from the land without labor and everyone lived in peace. So it's basically this idea of let's honor this past, um, you know, where Saturn's benevolence just gave us everything we needed, and Saturnalia was meant to kind of create these utopian conditions. Right. Now, there wasn't necessarily, like, a particular, like, exact menu for Saturnalia, uh, but we know that wheat bread would have definitely been a big part of it, because it was handed out by the Roman government, I mean, just generally... That was kind of their whole thing was free bread for everyone. But particularly on holidays, you would see a lot of, you know, an increase in just handing out of bread. Because most people didn't have home ovens anyway, so they would have had to either buy it or um, receive it from the government. Just because, for the most part, a lot of, I mean, especially within the city of Rome... um, you know, it was it was too much of a fire hazard. And that's true for a lot of urban places in Europe just generally. Like, you wouldn't have had home ovens in most cities or towns just because the danger of it catching fire and burning down the whole city was too big. But for the holidays, you could often get bread that was made into interesting shapes. <laughs> so you would have, you know, bakers would make them to look like animals or to resemble you know, maybe gods or um, specific, you know, it might be more generically like shaped like a woman or shaped like a man. It might also, if there's anyone under 18 listening, cover your ears. They would also bake bread in the shape of human genitalia. Dope. Because that was a symbol of <laughs> fertility. So. Merry Christmas, y'all. That's fun. I'm making some penis bread. <laughs> Exactly. As you should. It should be a time of revelry and fertility. We're going to get to actual Christmas stuff later in this episode, but this will come back. My traditional Christmas I'm going to have. Oh. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Here's here's some dick. Put it in your mouth. <laughs> Anyway, now on to pork. It's going to be super it's, so, it's gonna be super weird if you have to mark the food episode as explicit. <laughs> anyway, on to pork. So, pigs were considered a particularly good sacrifice for Saturnalia. Again, also, you know, um, conveniently, this was around the time of year when you really should be kind of thin in the herd in terms of pigs because it's hard to feed a pig all winter long and uh, all they provide is meat so now is about the time when you know you would slaughter them in november and then also into december as you know as it went on so gifts of pigs or Uh, pork sausage if you were poorer and couldn't afford to give an entire pig to someone were given as gifts during Saturnalia and it was very popular to take a pig to a priest to sacrifice the pig so he would get some of the meat and then you would take some of the meat but he would also read Mm. the pig's entrails for you and could divine your future so you could see if you were you know going to have a good good omens for the coming year or bad could tell you you know basically what to expect what to watch out for i didn't know pigs could do that yeah they were they were real big on reading entrails the romans lots of uh lots of doing that with birds as well 
that's just a side note. Reading entrails. I forget the actual yeah, name. There, there is a. It, it's a specific branch of divination. Now, of course, if you are celebrating Saturnalia, even if you don't have too too much in the way of meat, you know, you're maybe eating that as like more of a flavoring or a side dish. You would still be able to have, you know, vegetables and grains to, like, bulk out your meal. So it was actually really popular to cook root vegetables in wine sauces. Because that's another thing to remember is that every Roman holiday involves just a lot of wine. (laughs) The most wine. Everybody get that wine. And there's even recipes for what we would think of as, like, a form of mulled wine. Because basically they would take sort of the, you know, sort of the, like, dregs of the wine, Mm -hmm. the parts that you couldn't really just drink on its own. And there are recipes where it's recommended to boil that with maybe some honey and spices and then strain it through, uh, through fabric. Yeah. So that you end up with this kind of, like, honeyed wine spice drink. Interesting. Yeah. Moving a little bit north, we now come to our third big winter December-ish festival, which is <laughs> Yule, the Norse and Germanic kind of winter festival. And this is another one where people have trouble discerning what exactly the celebration was for. There's some you know, scholarly debate about what Yule was actually all about. There are some who say, yeah, it's definitely about the solstice. um, And others who say, no, that's, you know, unlikely. um, Just based on, you know, it wasn't necessarily about the movement of, you know, the the movement, quote unquote, of the sun versus, Mm -hmm. you know, light and darkness kind of thing. Um, There's also been connections to the wild hunt and the god Odin. So there's, you know, more of potentially Mm -hmm. it's based on honoring Odin rather than more of a natural phenomenon. The lesson is write things down. (laughs) Write things down so that other people in the future know what you are up to. (laughs) Because that would have been great. I feel like... In the future, historians are going to be struggling with memes. Yes, I think they will have the opposite problem of too much stuff. However, too much stuff I do want to say being able to filter out what is real and what is meme. Yes, I just think um, obviously the Baba Yaga Twitter account must be preserved for the ages <laughs> because that is quality content. And, you know, I think it's a perfect slice of life in doing the, the year of our Lord 2020. Doing the real work out there for us, Sonia. Yep. Thank you. I'm really just trying to plug this, you know, get people, get people following. We make, we make some good tweets. Okay. So, again, once again, we don't really know exactly what they would have been mm-hmm. eating at Yule. But, you know, through context, through... Seeing what is discussed, you know, they'll talk about, like, celebratory Mm -hmm. feasts and that sort of thing. We do know that they likely would have had whole animal carcasses being roasted in a pit. So, potentially, you know, you'd kill a cow or, like, again, a large pig, a boar, something like that, and just have it roasting in this giant spit over a fire kind of deal likely would have also featured a lot of mead and ale. You would have had traditionally probably wassail, which is, again, kind of like a warmed up ale drink with apples in it. And especially in the further north countries by this time, you likely would have already been having to get into some of your stored and preserved fruits just because the growing season would have been shorter and would have ended earlier but you likely would have you know berry and fruit preserves uh, vegetables that had been pickled or root vegetables that had been put away but it does look like the big 
you know, the big feasting part yeah. would have been the meat and the ale. <laughs> and that's what I'm here for. Same. All about that. Would they have and had... And now, would they it's have time had to move on to... A log? Mm -hmm. Oh, yes, they would have had a Yule log. <laughs> so that's the other part of this is that, you know, you'd have your Yule log that is a giant log that's supposed to burn for, like, days at a time um, to right. keep up the celebration. Um, so you, again, likely would have been roasting food over that, probably assorted meats, because um, especially you know, pre-year 1000-ish, you know, kind of the, the staple foods in these areas are meat, milk, right? Because you're, it's still um, quite, I mean, it, it is farming, they have grains, but the reliance isn't yeah. on grains just yet. It's still a lot of the diet being made up of, yeah. you know, your herds, basically. Sweet. But then we get into Medieval Christmas, which borrows a bunch from Yule anyways. Because, and from Saturnalia, because you know what's a great way to market <laughs> a new religion? religion. <laughs> Make it fun. <laughs> yes. Uh, and before, you know, I do want to be clear that this is not me saying like, ah, yes, so everyone was secretly pagan through the whole Middle Ages because, A, they they weren't. They were absolutely obsessed with like, Jesus. you know, Jesus, Mary, saints, the Bible. Uh, but also, you know, I think... You don't want to get rid of your we have to remember traditions that, that you already have. Exactly. Like, traditions can change their meaning over time or have in many cases, yeah. end up taking on kind of a both-and meaning, right? Exactly. Like, and, and I also do want to say that this is happening even pre-Christianization, right? Like, this melding and merging of different cultures and different ideas is happening outside of Christianization, right? Like, if you look at Roman Britain, there's a lot of overlap when the yeah. Romans meet with the indigenous uh like Celts and Britons, Celts, yeah. Celts, and um, you know, you get um this kind of blending of their cultures as well and their religions, where you kind of get these dual goddesses, dual gods. Um, so I just want to be clear that this isn't a. I I just it's not like, well, Christmas is just Saturnalia or Christmas is just Yule. It's like well, it's those things. Plus Christmas. Like, it's a bunch of things sort of layered on top of each other. Yeah. And I'm going to talk about this as well when in a few minutes when I talk about the Puritans. Right. Um, because this was a serious debate for a while. Yes. Um, just in case anyone listening to this is not aware what Christmas is, quick rundown. It's a feast day in the in the Christian faith. It commemorates the birth of Jesus Christ, who's the Son of God, to the Virgin Mary. Uh, long story short, Mary and her husband Joseph have to travel to Bethlehem because that's his hometown, and he has to go to his hometown for a census. When they get there, it's all filled up in the inn, so they have nowhere to stay except a stable. And Mary, who is heavily pregnant at the time, gives birth to Jesus in the stable, and a star appears over the manger where he's born. Angels appear in the sky. Wise men show up with gifts. The son of God is born. Done. Yep. So that's what's going on. And for the first few hundred years of Christianity, it's not really a big deal. Christmas is just another, you know, day where you go in and go to mass, yep. say some prayers, have some quiet contemplation. But around the year 400, 500, the years wear on, and people start saying, you know, we could we could jazz this up a little. We could spice it up. <laughs> and we'll get into more of that on our History of Christmas episode, which is coming up. Yeah. But let's talk about what are people eating in the Middle Ages when they have their Christmas feast. When they do decide that, you know what, we're going to make this into a 12-day-long just reveling holiday we've 
converted a bunch of people. We now have Saturnalia. <laughs> we have Yule. We have Jesus. We're going to smush it all together. Well, first things first, pork. Once again, slaughter a pig. Eat the pig. Mm-hmm. Great Christmas the dinner. Christmas ham. The Christmas ham. If you were really fancy, you could have a whole like suckling pig. So you'd have the whole yeah. thing that was uncured. And for the fanciest, fanciest people, like aristocratic <laughs> fancy, you could go out boar hunting because this is also the season to hunt boars. And mm-hmm. that was the centerpiece of your Christmas feast was the boar's head mm-hmm. being brought to the table. So graphic. <laughs> apologies, friends. Can I, you know, I, uh, I'm just telling it like it is. I didn't come up with this. But can I also say, even for those who maybe weren't as fancy, just because you don't have a pig to slaughter and have a whole suckling pig or a whole boar's head on your table doesn't mean you can't make it out of bread. So that was super common was people would shape their loaves of bread into pigs and the shapes of boar's heads and bake them and have them as fun little, you know, just a fun little Christmas, Christmas shaped bread. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Right? The other big thing is that you probably would have had some form of meat pies um, Mm -hmm. just because, again... You're dealing with a lot of, it, it's a time of year when you have a lot of random bits of food left. Mm-hmm. So why not just smush them all up and put them into a pie shell? Yeah. So again, if you're a very fancy person, these pies would typically be actually quite flavorful, mm-hmm. um, like very interesting flavors. So you would have meat, but also you'd be putting in... Meat and vegetables, but also dried fruits. Mm -hmm. So you'd get like raisins and dried apricots. Mm -hmm. um, And you would likely also put in spices that you could afford. So if you could afford ginger, cinnamon, nutmeg, you'd put that in there as Mm -hmm. well. Um, If you could afford like um, have citruses, you would have that sort of sour taste. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, you know, the original like mincemeat pies specifically were like that where it was actual meat was in there um because palates were very different back then yeah (laughs) um they were much more open to the idea of putting like cinnamon and ginger on their meat and putting raisins into things it just we didn't have this and and i mean to be clear there are still like a lot of non-western cuisines that do that that have meat that is spiced in these like Ways that to us seem strange, because, again, we'll talk about the Victorians in a moment and how they change how we eat food. Victorians! <laughs> but also, the most fun part of this pie, which, again, they just like shaping things out of bread. So you put into your little pie <laughs> shell whatever it is you have. So if you're a peasant, you're probably going to go heavy on, like, the peas and some root vegetables with like some meat for flavor if you're wealthy you put in everything but the kitchen sink and then on top because jesus was born in a manger you would shape the top of your pie to kind of look like a like a manger and then out of the excess dough you'd make a tiny baby jesus to put on top and you would have your jesus pie That's really cute. <laughs> yeah, so it's very adorable. Um, again, they were really into Jesus and also into making yeah. fun shapes out of dough. <laughs> and eating your God. And eating your God. Eating your God. Theophagy. Great. <laughs> love it. 10 out of 10. Christians love eating God. Yep. Catholics in particular, we're just, we're all about that. I want, I don't want... Transubstantiation. Exactly. I don't want metaphorical body and blood. I want a high-protein snack when I get the Eucharist. (laughs) I want that meat and blood. (laughs) Devin, I'm going to get excommunicated, and it's going to be great. (laughs) Why would you get excommunicated for standing up for transubstantiation? You know, you're right. I'm I'm right, and I should say it. (laughs) There you go. 
Um, again, the other thing to remember is at these feasts, ale obviously remained very popular as well as mulled wine or, you know, kind of a var- variance of mulled wine. And again, wassail throughout the northern regions because, you know, typically wine is more prevalent, obviously, in the south of Europe as opposed to the north where you can't really grow grapes yeah. as easily. <laughs> yeah. I would also like to say that in, uh, particularly in Eastern Europe and in some parts of Italy, Christmas was still seen as a meatless day, which means you can eat fish. Because, as we all know, fish is not meat. (laughs) Neither is beaver. Beaver is not meat. That's... It is a fish because it lives in the water. (laughs) Per the Pope. (laughs) Exactly. Source the Pope. Uh, So you get the Italian Feast of the Seven Fishes, where, as the name implies, you eat seven different types of fish. And I have had that feast. Hey! Would you like to tell us about it? Sure. I mean, you don't have to. I I had it once. Oh, fair. Uh, I was living with a boyfriend's family who were very, very wonderful, and I had Christmas with them. They did a like traditional Italian Christmas for me. Oh, so that's very sweet. We had the, all the fish. Well, now I'm going to hop on and talk about Eastern Europe because that's my family. <laughs> and in a lot of Eastern Europe, you have the 12 traditional meatless dishes, which alter- which either represent the 12 apostles or Jesus plus the 11 apostles who aren't Judas. You don't get a oh. dish, Judas. Get out of here. <laughs> so basically I've had I've had this feast. You too. have had this feast because I made it. <laughs> a typical menu is usually wheat berries cooked in poppy seeds. It's called kutia and you eat that first. Oh it's so delicious. It's my favorite part. Oh, it's so yummy. Uh then there's normally borscht, which is beet mm, soup. Also yummy. Followed by assorted pickles. That could be pickled cucumbers, mushrooms, pickled fish, etc. There's also a festive bread that's called kolach, not to be confused with pastries that are eaten in, like, the UK that are, like, they look like danishes almost. This is, like, Mm. this kolach is, like, a big braided bread. Think challah. It's closer to challah, I'd say. And then, you know, assorted pierogies, cabbage rolls, different types of cooked fishes, gravies, sauces, and then you end the meal with various donuts sweet treats and again this is all being sweetened mostly with you know honey and other sorry let me redo that again um and also um again all the sweets are either coming from honey or Mm -hmm. you know having jams and preserves on baked goods because sugar is still not really common in Europe at this point, right? It's still very expensive. Uh, it's hard to obtain. But that starts changing throughout the early modern period. And it's in the early modern period that we start seeing, obviously, as a result of uh, colonialism, sugar becomes much more prominent along with spices. So you're able to get cinnamon, nutmeg, ginger, cloves, uh you know, star anise much more easily. Mm -hmm. And that's when we start seeing these developments, especially in a lot of Western European countries, um, in terms of using these kinds of things to bake what we would think now more like Christmas cookies. So, you know, and uh, gingerbread, that sort of thing becomes this Christmas staple. And that's when we really start seeing that as like 16th, 17th centuries, especially like more and more that becomes a, you know, the idea of baking spiced cakes and cookies for Christmas takes hold at that point. Yeah. Um, And then we get to the Victorians. Who really, really, I mean, in terms of their Christmas feasts, as with most of the Victorians, they did it up. They 
mm-hmm. just went absolutely over the top for <laughs> everything. Because you suddenly have industrialization, which means there's a lot more commercial products available in the first place. Yeah. And for people who were in the middle class and or working class, but making something resembling a decent wage, it wasn't. It wasn't half bad because you suddenly had access to a bunch of things you never had before. Mm-hmm. So I'd say the biggest change is the kind of meat that was consumed. Mm-hmm. Because as we've talked about for many, many centuries, uh, it would have been pork that would have been the, you know, kind of mainstay of a December holiday meal. Mm -hmm. But in the 19th century, this starts shifting to, say, a goose in in Britain Mm -hmm. and also in other parts of Europe. You know, you're seeing more and more, like, fowl, poultry... Uh, even in the Americas, there's many places that to this day also use like turkeys. Um, and that seems to be mostly because these for a very long time, as we talked about at the beginning of the episode, would have been an out of reach luxury. Yeah. Because, right, if you're living as as a peasant, you're not going to kill your chicken or your goose because that's what's feeding your family through the eggs. Yeah. Um, but now with industrialization and improvements in farming, you know, quote unquote improvements, um, you know, they're able to grow bigger chickens, bigger geese. They're able to get more of them faster. And that becomes something that becomes accessible for people to have on their Christmas table. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is they were very the victorians especially as we get to the mid 19th century and into the late 19th century they really back away from a lot of the spices mm-hmm. because they basically start seeing it as a little bit uncouth to put too much spice on your food yeah <laughs> do I you want to talk that. about that or do you just want me to talk about it i mean you can talk about it. i mean i've re- i've read about this also about like that's when you start getting the idea that you have, like, with eating beef especially, of yeah. not putting seasoning on it. Because if you are wealthy enough to get a good cut of meat, like, you want to show that off. Because, like, oh, look how fresh and nice my meat tastes. Yep. I'm not going to cover it in spices because, like, not having the spices and just having the ingredients, the like, the, the base ingredients be, yep. like enough to like show off your wealth and that like if you have something that needs a lot of spice that means like it's a lesser cut of meat and stuff this is also like when people start eating more and more beef as opposed to like not slaughtering your cows because they give you milk so it's like in that whole movement um, yeah exactly and it does end up getting applied to a lot of other Basically to all foods. Yeah. It's like, well, you know, carrots should taste like carrots and they shouldn't yeah. have anything else on them and potatoes should taste like potatoes. Um, and it's also, you know, I mean, it's it's partly just a... Res- it's a backlash to the fact that particularly in the industrial age, poor people suddenly yeah. have access to spices. And it's like, well, it's yeah. not special anymore. So we need to find a different way to be special. Um, and it also seems to be partly as a backlash to yep. uh, immigrants who are coming because, you know, a lot of people, if you're Italian immigrants, you're probably or, or uh, Eastern European immigrants, a lot of Jewish immigrants throughout the 19th and early 20th centuries, you're seeing like, you know, oh, they use like herbs and garlic and that's that's yucky and bad and we don't want to be like them so it becomes this weird like class thing about i must have bland food to show that i am fancy then especially in the u.s and uk where you have the major progressive movements there's this whole like nutritional movement and they get really into eating yes food yes so that like i don't it's it's weird it, it doesn't if you know anything about nutrition looking back on it it doesn't like really make any sense but like they really want all like people to eat and i think it has to do with like capitalism as well like we're gonna say that the food in the tins are better for you so that then you have to buy the food you can't produce it 
on your own. It's really like keeping the working class like in the control of the like capitalist class. Yeah, absolutely. But, yeah, the progressives really latch on to like, well, we have to make sure that these poor starving children are eating adequately, and the way that they do that is through convincing the lower class, especially like the working class, that not lower, the working class, <laughs> that they should be eating more and more tinned <laughs> food, and like by saying that it's healthier, the like very paranoid uh, middle class starts latching on to tinned food as well. Um, because especially in, yes. like, North America, the middle class gets, like, weirdly, as sort of germ theory develops, they get, like, very, like, f- hygiene-focused in, like, weird ways. Yes. Yeah, very much so. And they end up making a lot of very, very <laughs> strange choices in food and other ways. Um, aspics become super popular among people who are wealthy enough to do it which is basically putting your meat and vegetables into jello to make sure that they stay nice and preserved um and they're usually like think of a 1950s jello salad but like with meat because it's a hard to make but with meat in it the unflavored gelatin and so, like, the gelatin would end up tasting yeah. like meat as well. It's They made them in the 70s, too. Yeah, it's also... Well, I, I was also going to say, because in the 19th century, it's also a big... Um, like, it's a big yeah. indicator of wealth. Because to make gelatin, right? Like, you need to have somebody... You have to have a servant, basically. Because you need to have someone who can stand over a stove all day boiling, yeah, like... You know, a cow's foot or whatever. Yeah, to boil down the hooves to get the gelatin out and then cook the gelatin and, like, have the expertise to be able to turn that into, like, a solidified gelatin mold. So it's partly this weird, like, emphasis on germs and partly a, like, we, yeah, we want to show how rich we are that we can waste our time, (laughs) basically, making this. More importantly, waste... I'm sorry, if you like aspects, go for it, but... Time. Yeah. Yes, that's very true. <laughs> but another very popular thing that happens at this time is you're getting a lot of kind of varieties of soups and cooked vegetables and potato dishes because it, again, it becomes very fashionable to lay out a whole array of mm-hmm. side dishes that you know, your guests may or may not eat. Um, Appetizers, as we think of them today, start to become popularized. So things like, um, you know, so you're getting things like oysters, because you now are getting the technology to be able to transport Mm -hmm. them from, you know, the seaside to the center of countries. Um, So it becomes more more accessible Mm -hmm. to people again. And same with fruits. You know, if you've ever gotten you know, a satsuma or a clementine or a tangerine or an orange in your Christmas stocking, this is a remnant from that era because, right, like, even if you were, you know, like, transporting citrus was still a luxury good at that time. So for a lot of kids, that would be, like, the one or two times of the year where you would get to have an orange and you would, like, that was a big special treat. And now we have Terry's chocolate orange to fill that void. I love those. Also in the in the US because it's the time of like the filibusters, which at some point in time we can talk about filibustering and what that means in the 19th century context, but uh what it's the the rise of what we now call like the banana republics. And so bananas were a big thing. Yes. Uh in the in North America as like a holiday treat, as something you would give kids as a gift. Until, like, they became overwhelmingly available towards the end. But the beginning of the 19th century, bananas. Yeah. People were really stoked about bananas. Yeah. Exactly. I know pineapples, you know, fun fact, you wouldn't actually eat your pineapple for the most part. Um, You would actually, their pineapples in especially the early 19th century were so expensive that rich people and middle class people would rent them for a dinner party so you would be like your job would be okay i 
like I rent out pineapples and you would take this same pineapple and rent it out to multiple people. So they would have it for the duration of their dinner party and it could sit in the middle of the table and you could say, look at me, I'm so fancy, I can afford a pineapple. And everyone would look at it and go, wow, you're so fancy, you can have a pineapple. And then you would give it back to the person you rented it to and this same pineapple would just be in circulation until it disintegrated. No one would eat it. It was just (laughs) there for show. It's absolutely bonkers. Capitalism is fucking bananas. (laughs) Thank you. Quarantine out food. You can eat it though. Just eat. Oh my god. <laughs> well, let's talk about things that you could you can eat, eat. A pineapple. <laughs> that happen in the Victorian. I'm so. I am a rat. Which pineapple was. Fact. <laughs> I'm sorry. I yeah, thought this was like, just going to oh, be a fun people. fact. The Victorian era sucked for so many people. These people have food that they're just like... Sorry. I'm very angry now. <laughs> I'm sorry. I should have saved that till okay. the end. What were the what were people actually I mean, eating? we can talk about the things that you would actually eat rather than your decorative pineapple. Were... Again, we see this explosion of candy, of cookies, of different kinds of cakes, because, again, you're seeing with industrialization, you're getting mass-produced products. So you're seeing things like mass-produced fruit cakes, which for some reason yeah. still exist today. And I genuinely want to know who's buying them, because <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's just my dad. I think it's just him keeping the industry alive, and I don't know who no, all these other cakes are going but to. This is when, like, uh, Cadbury and all those companies sort of pop up. Mm-hmm. Yep, because it's suddenly mm-hmm. things like chocolates, uh, marshmallows become very popular, caramels. Um, so it goes from being this very exclusive thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like candies and little cakes, and even cookies go from being somewhat exclusive to being like super mass produced, super easy to get. <laughs> um, sugar plums, that actually is not a plum. Is it? <laughs> it's a pineapple. They, <laughs> they're actually. <laughs> it's the remnants of that disgusting pineapple that's been rented to five hundred people. No, it's. <laughs> they were actually little tiny candies that would have been made maybe including prunes, but they could also include um, mm-hmm. kind of a, like a compote or a, yeah, I guess kind of a smush together of preserved fruits and little, um, mm-hmm. little crushed like walnuts and pecans or you know whatever kinds of nuts you'd have some spices and then you would sort of roll the whole thing in sugar and they were called sugar plums Uh because of their shape and size resembled a plum so that's what that line in uh but it's actually funny because that's what the line in the night before christmas refers to but this actually ended up reverse this did end up basically getting reverse engineered because if you look now, you can buy things that are called sugar plums and they are candies, just like regular hard candies that are shaped like plums and they're like purple and have a little green leaf and they like made plums out of sugar and <laughs> they have so plum weird. flavor. I love how things end up happening like that. Yeah, so it's another like, yeah, where it's like the name existed way before <laughs> the thing that would have made sense for it did. But, of course, we must uh, we must also discuss the working class at this time, like the very poorest parts of the working class, who, for Christmas, in a lot of cases, it wasn't that different from your average day. You maybe would have been able to scrounge up a little bit of money to buy candy canes or other types of small candies that were being sold, maybe put together some gingerbread... Um, you know, you would likely be able to get some amount of maybe, you know, some meat to mix in with your meals, but, you know, 
I I don't want to portray this as like, oh yes, the Victorian Christmas, because it's like, no, for for a lot of people, Christmas would have been like, ah, I get a candy cane beside (laughs) my gruel this morning. Delightful. Um, but yeah, that's essentially where we get a lot of, you know, it's, it's closer to the end of the Victorian season where we see more of this sort Mm -hmm. of standardized Christmas dinner as we would think of it, like in, you know, quote unquote, the West, right? Where it's like, you know, your, your TV thing where it's, Mm -hmm. you know, the beautiful either ham or turkey, depending (laughs) on the region, and you have mashed potatoes and you have like, a side dish of vegetables and a, and a pineapple. basket of rolls and there's a gingerbread house in the background. I'm getting a pineapple now. <laughs> and I think another thing is that in the US and in Anglophone Canada, at least, the Francophone parts had their own more French traditions, but in Anglophone Canada and throughout the US, there's really not a celebration of Christmas until the Victorian era. So Devin's going to talk about that for yeah, a bit. Yeah, so things are kind of, of weird with Christmas as we would think about it now, especially when if you've been inundated with American culture and the quote-unquote war on Christmas that is apparently being fought now, which is definitely not a thing. Don't listen to anybody telling you that there's a war on Christmas. The real war on Christmas is capitalists giving us one day off instead of yeah, 12. for real. <laughs> That's my my hot take. War on Christmas, give me two yeah, weeks so off. The, well, that and, I mean, we can talk about the historical war on Christmas, which was led by Puritan ministers against yes. the, what I would call traditional Christmas celebrations. Because yes. when, we, when we talk about Christmas, at least in this period, right, so we're looking at the early 1600s when Puritans have, like, come to... North America and also like the Cromwell rule in England that what's happening there on a theological level is that those those ministers are saying there is no reason for us to have Christmas and they have a couple of reasons for this we shouldn't as they called keep Christmas we shouldn't keep Christmas because the the quote from Increase Mather who was the first like puritan uh head like the 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 big puritan minister in massachusetts was that if uh right if jesus had wanted us to have an annual celebration of his birth he would have at least told us when it was (laughs) (laughs) which is just fantastic um it is clearly January 6th. Shout out to all my old calendar friends. But, um, so there's that. And he's like, there is no reason within like doctrine for us to be keeping this as a holiday. They also didn't want to celebrate any saints days because it was idolatry. So all of these days they, they got rid of. But there's also the fact that there is a an open acknowledgement of why Christmas is celebrated on the 25th. And the, the church, the Catholic church is very clear about like, we know that people aren't going to give up this festival. So we'll just make it about Christ. And Puritan. So Puritans were like, this has nothing to do with Christ. This is sacrilegious. It's also an incredibly, uh, bananas like we didn't really talk all about saturnalia and we'll get into it later in our next episode but the main things about it are like we talked about with wassailing demanding presence um getting terrifyingly drunk for many days a lot of people started celebrating these festivals at the beginning of december and then well into january so it's just days and days of people getting up and getting totally wasted and often like having these bizarre rituals where they like elected a lord of misrule and he would get like a wife and they would do this like sort of faux marriage ceremony in front of people to which uh, the Puritans said they would take that to its ultimate conclusion. 
Um, so there's a lot of references <laughs> in this very Puritan language to public fornication um, in a lot of different ways. Uh, and this was was an issue in Puritan Massachusetts. If you look at marriage and birth records, almost half of the children in Puritan Massachusetts were born no later than seven months after their parents' marriage. So they were having yeah. controlling their young people. Um, so they really wanted yeah, to get rid bit. of all of these like reveling holidays. They wanted to get rid of these things where people were not acting godly. Um, and, and, and so they mm-hmm. actually did for a period of about 20 to 30 years outlawed christmas celebrations at all you couldn't get the day off if you were caught celebrating christmas you would be fined five shillings and possibly another five shillings for being drunk during the day so there's like a Aww. lot of these things like you could be prosecuted for was sailing you could be prosecuted for all all sorts of things having to do with like this traditional Christmas. Um, And it's not until the mid 18th century that people start acknowledging Christmas in almanacs, which is Mm -hmm. a big tell of like how, whether how people are actually using the day um, because people are like asking for it to be marked in their almanac. So they know when December 25th is coming up. And so it starts being marked there, but the, the advice that's given in the almanac becomes much more about remember temperance and moderation and that this is a holy day and you should be celebrating it with your family. And so you get this very Americanized Victorian idea, like not, it's not Victorian yet, but like what becomes a Victorian idea of Christmas of this is a family holiday where we gather together in our homes with, you know, our family and friends because that had sort of, because of the year, how the, the agricultural year worked, people were sort of doing that anyway. And so it was a way to let people have some sort of celebration without having the class disruption um, that was almost even more important in North America where they didn't have the aristocracy because you couldn't, you couldn't have somebody yeah. barge into your home, take a bunch of your food, and then the next day be able to come out and be like, I am your lord. You know, if you don't have that strict enforced by the government class hierarchy, it's a lot harder to keep it in check. And so you can't have these days of like changing power dynamics. So, yeah. but it was still the period when you were like slaughtering animals. And so we have records from people's diaries of like, you know, my sons, my adult sons came over and they brought me, you know, this cut of beef or they brought me, you know, some lamb or ham or whatever. And like that, they made a gift of it and they stayed for, you know, a few days. And it's, it's often around the end of the year. Um, So it's not necessarily happening on Christmas, but it becomes more and more common that it happens on Christmas. And then as you get more, um, immigrants from different parts of Europe coming to North America, so the Irish, um, Italians, later into the 19th century, Christmas takes up a new sort of meaning and becomes a much more important holiday. And we get then the influence of Dickens being published in the United States and that sort of coming into the Anglo um, calendar as well. Um, Dickens sort of really brought back this idea of like Christmas being a holiday that well-to-do people can celebrate as well. Um, and that really changes for America. So the the foods and stuff that you see are really the things that are brought from Europe. So, you know, the if you were Anglo, you were getting it from the the Dick- the Dickensian models of things there's a lot of and especially if you were you know anglo-scottish in the american south where there was a lot of hog farming it was a lot of christmas ham um and then if it, it sort of becomes in the states this mishmash of immigrant cultures a lot of germanic foods get introduced and it it really depends on where you're like family and culture originated and the the dominant culture of 
like settlers in that area. So you would have sort of different foods in the South versus Pennsylvania, where there's a lot of like Dutch and German versus, you know, New York, where there's a lot of Italian, Irish, Boston, where like you're still sort of, there's still that sort of Puritan influence in New England. So it's, it's all very different based on that. And then again, you have like later the Victorians when, Christmas finally becomes something that is actually celebrated. So it Christmas always sort of existed in what is now the United States, but it was very much under the radar. And if you were openly acknowledging it, you could get into a lot of trouble. And it was not until the mid 19th or late 19th century, the 1870s, I think, that it became an actual public holiday where businesses would close and right you know, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have to go to work. You would often, um, on Christmas before this, people, if you ran a mill or a mine or something like that, where people would have to come into work at a certain time, they would make you come in like four hours earlier on Christmas day. So like five in the morning before the light at nine or whatever. You'd have to come in at five to make sure that you couldn't go to a church service in the morning before you came to work. So it was like if if you had like a large if you were, you know, a a Protestant Anglo Protestant in America and you had a lot of like Irish workers, um, you would make sure like, oh, we have to get all of these Irishmen in early so that they don't go and do some popish thing. You know, racism. <laughs> um, so it was like, it was like yep. that kind of real contrast. And it wasn't really until the Victorians and Queen Victoria specifically made Christmas, like Dickens and Queen Victoria made it something that was that was respectable again and not a holiday that was just associated with debauchery and drunkenness. <laughs> but uh, my plan is to have a traditional Christmas. <laughs> With a, with a pineapple i'm gonna get a pineapple i'm gonna get really really drunk do something lewd no i'm kidding this is i'm gonna be quarantined but i wish <laughs> next year traditional christmas next year <laughs> i mean Devin, even in the lockdown there's nothing stopping you from going outside and just <laughs> screaming sing some carols scream a bit Yell into the void. Yeah, I think I'll try that. But I think, though, like... Well, I was just oh, going to say, like, I mean, what this Christmas is going to look very, very different from how we've normally celebrated Christmas. So what do you think we can take from our look at the history of Christmas foods and holiday foods? Well, I sorry, think, like... Hanukkah and Kwanzaa and other... Yeah, I mean, just... Festivals are also being... Whatever you're celebrating <laughs> around this time of year. I mean, it's going to be different than in, you know, normal years. Because, yeah, it is going to be... I mean, you know, I, I would... It's going to be likely with just the people in your household. Um, it's not going to be these, like, big gatherings. Um, but I do think, you know, you can still... as As we've seen talking about this right like people basically would make a celebration and make these celebratory foods based on what they had what was seasonal what was available what made sense for them so you know this year yeah i'm not planning on making a big christmas feast because again it's i'm not i'm not cooking for like 30 some odd people this year um but I do think I'm going to, you know, try to find find some things to make that still feel celebratory. I'm still going to bake cookies because those will last forever. I'm still going to, you know, do some do some baking, make a nice dinner, make a nice meal. So that it's still kind of celebratory, even if it's different yeah, than normal. I- and who knows? Maybe I'm thinking this year I might uh might do a medieval Christmas <laughs> and, dinner I mean, again. We can throw it throw it back scaled to down the 
like Christmas of the Puritan era where we have to do it in secret. I'm not saying that you should have a bunch of people over to your house. Exactly. A very mellow, under the radar kind of Christmas. Yeah, because I mean, I don't think, you know, just because you're not having your normal like giant turkey or giant ham with like a million side dishes doesn't mean that you can't still have a celebratory meal. It just means maybe on a smaller scale. And, you know, I think if possible, try to, you know, support, again, as we always say, like, try to support local things, try to buy from, you know, maybe the smaller independent grocery store, or, you know, if you eat meat, go to a butcher or whatever, like, you know, just keeping it smaller, keeping it more local. If you're in the States and this is no longer a thing. It would be a great time to try a mince pie. This North America never really, we sort of lost the taste for the mince pies. But you can find many a recipe for them. And so That's fair. They is, are a taste. This is a year to try some historical recipes. You can, which yes. will actually be yes. going up on the blog at some mm-hmm. point in the coming days. Because actually, it might already be up by the time. No, it won't be up by the time they're listening to this. But it will be up because I want to put down... A the menu yeah. that I did for medieval Christmas last year. And then just thank you. And I will share with you know, with anyone who's interested in maybe trying some <laughs> some of the medieval foods and making their own baby Jesus pie with, you know, a pig shaped <laughs> bread to go with it. I had forgotten you made that pig bread. <laughs> I remember that now. <laughs> It didn't taste very good because it, it was, was my really first time trying to I make bread really and I really up. messed up the salt, <laughs> but it was adorable. <laughs> well, you know, we had to eat. Okay, well, with that in mind, uh, I hope everyone has a safe and delicious holiday meal. You know, I think it's about time to close out the episode. As always, thank you to all of our wonderful patrons. If you are interested in supporting us, please sign up on Patreon. You get access to exclusive merch and to exclusive bonus content. (laughs) Find us on Twitter and Instagram. We're all at Baba Yaga Project. And stay safe and do good work. See you next week. Oh